Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're all very welcome to this live episode of the Irish Times Women's Podcast from the Little Museum of Dublin on St. Stephen's Green on this early, bright and sunny International Women's Day 2018. Now remember, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes or whatever app you listen to the podcast on. If you like what you hear, go to iTunes and give us a review and tell all your friends. Or you can email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or find us on Twitter or Facebook at IT Women's Podcast. If you want to tweet along today, use the hashtags IrishTimesWomen and IWD2018. Now, we are delighted to be doing our first podcast from the Little Museum of Dublin, and I think we're going to have a very stimulating discussion. This podcast is a kind of a preview of an exhibition that will be showing in this museum from March 31st. The exhibition is called, What's She Doing Here? Or you could say, What's She Doing Here? Thank you, Trevor White, for coming up with that very inspired title. You can make it as rude or as inquisitive as you like. Uh, What's she doing here? We have three women here, and what are they doing in their jobs? Now, we've, that's the name of our episode, What's She Doing Here? Except we've added a bit. Our podcast is called What's She Doing Here? And How Did She Get Here? Or How Did She Get Here? Because we want to look at women who have succeeded and indeed thrived in typically male-dominated environments. We want to ask about the challenges and high points of their jobs, their thoughts on how to encourage more women to try less well-trodden paths, and also what their experiences have been so far. We have four very interesting women here and a lovely audience and happy International Women's Day to you all. Now let me introduce you to our panel. Betha Bygard, whose name is spelled quite differently to the pronunciation, I want you to know, but I've been learning hard, is a photographer who has published a very beautiful book on women called A Woman's Work, which focuses on women in usually male-dominated workplaces, and the book forms the inspiration for the exhibition that will be opening here on March 31st. Welcome, Betha. Hello. Teresa Hudson is a firefighter and paramedic with the Dublin Fire Brigade and was not rostered on during the recent snow, which must have been a bit of a relief. It was, definitely. Welcome, Teresa. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Glad you're not snowed in. <laughs> Lisa Levens Burgess is also a cover girl and works with the RNLI on the lifeboats, and we're delighted she sailed along to us today with no drama. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you very much. And finally, all the way from Ennis County Clare, aircraft engineer Kate Milady has left a very beautiful tiny baby at home. Now, would we say that about a male interviewee? We'll talk about that. To come join us for this International Women's Day. Will you give them all a big round of applause? Now, Betha, this beautiful coffee table book with pictures, picture after picture, of strong women in their work outfits. How did the book come about? What inspired you? It started about three years ago when I was asked to... um, take part on the exhibition called Women and Beauty. It was uh, happening in Czech Republic, and I'm Czech, so I was asked to participate on that. And um, I was... um, I decided to explore the beauty um, in a different way, and I started to photograph my friends, who I think they are beautiful, and it turned out that they have also very, very interesting jobs. Um, so I have um, uh, photographed first 18 pictures uh, for the exhibition in Czech Republic uh, in 2016. And then I decided the natural progress was to bring this collection to Ireland. But I, of course, wanted to expand it. So over uh, the next um, year and a half or two years, I was actively searching for women 
in unusual jobs and predominantly male industries and I found all those lovely women and you all did. these ladies. And was it was it a hard search better or did they oh, did yes. it come easily in the end? No, it was uh, that was um, like 80% of the work uh, on the book. The taking picture was the cherry on the cake. That yeah. was the fun. Um, but uh, yeah, finding them was really hard. And there were three ways how I did it. Uh, I was Googling, of course. Um, word of mouth, I was asking everyone, do you know anybody who does something weird? A <laughs> uh, woman who does something... Um, and, um, and then uh, the third way was... Uh, the women that I have already photographed or found, they would tell me that they would have a friend who is doing this interesting profession. So that's how it came about. But it was uh, it was very long journey. And you also had to source funding for the book. Yes, I found sponsors and I uh, did the crowdfunding campaign. So that's how it uh, came about. But it was all self-publishing madness. And I'm not sure whether I would do this again. <laughs> I mean, well, self-publishing. Yes. Uh, I would publish a book, of course. But um, uh, the self-publishing, it uh, it's, um, uh, it's tough. It's tough. Well, there's hard research in there. There is the business end of it and there's the creativity Betha, well done. Thank really you. beautiful production. Thank you very much. Teresa. Good what morning, Cathy. Good morning. What were you thinking of? Uh, ask me now, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Did you always want to be a firefighter? Uh, I always wanted to do something different. So I was uh, working in the private sector. I worked in Guinness for 10 years. Uh, so I was what were you doing with Guinness? Uh, I, I, Guinness is like the public sector, so you work in so many different areas. Um, but my, I sort of I worked in what was the original Hop store, which is now the storehouse. I worked in online sales, and then I worked in licensing for merchandise was my last protocol. Uh, so yeah, I always wanted to do something different. Um, I was in the Reserve Defence Forces as well at the time. and I Why knew, did you do that, by the way? Uh, again, a friend of mine, when we were 17 and in school, decided she wanted to join the army, but she wanted to test it out first. So she wanted to join the Reserve Defence Forces and said, uh, I don't want to do it by myself. So I said, yeah, okay. Knew nothing about it. Absolutely nothing about it. My mother said, oh, yeah, you'll last five minutes. <laughs> and I lasted 21 years. Um, so yeah, joined it, joined the Reserve Defence Forces, was in uh, the 7th Regiment, which was an artillery unit. Um, and through that, obviously met a lot of different people, very diverse group, and there was a lot of firefighters in it. And the way they spoke about their job and what they do, and uh, in Dublin, uh, as a lot of people will know, it's firefighter paramedic, because we're dual role. And uh, basically they advertised, and a panel came up, and I thought, Oh, I'm going to put my name in and see how it goes. So I applied and went through the long, drawn-out process of all the different interviews and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, I was successful and panicked. I was terrified. I was like, oh, my God, can I do this? Right up until Monday evening. And we started on the Tuesday of a bank holiday, the 2nd of May, 2006. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? But best decision I ever made. I absolutely, I'm in my 13th year. It feels like two. Like, I absolutely love my Has job. Has anybody ever said to you, what are you doing here? Do you know something people say it to me all the time? But it's not in the same tone. It's in different tones. There are people who obviously say it as in, what are you doing here? Um, what I find is, and even up to yesterday, um, a, a lovely lady said, what do you do in the fire brigade? <laughs> and I go... Same you as everybody make the does. uniforms. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I actually said that one day. There was a lady in visiting the station with her son and her grandson and all that kind of stuff. And she said, what do you do? And I went, well, I'm here to look after the lads. And she goes, isn't that great? And I kind of had to go, no, 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 no. <laughs> I was like, no, no, I, I do the same. You don't go into fires. No, I do. Yeah, I do. Oh, my God. And, like, you know, and I think, in fairness, it wasn't a derogatory thing. It's just people looked at you and go, Really? Um, but yeah, so when you say it in that tone, I have heard that in every single tone you're talking about. Um, and in most instances, I think it's just people have this picture in their head of a fireman. You say firefighter and they go, what? Yeah. But they eat fireman and it's the guy running into building, coming out, carrying out the child, all that kind of stuff. And you know, that is a part of it, obviously. That's what we do. It's, it's our, our sort have of... Have you carried out a child? Uh, of a burning building, no. Um, but yeah, I carry them all the time because we're paramedics. So actually, 
a huge chunk of what we do is involved in dealing with people on the worst day of their lives. Um, and it, it is that, you know, there are the awful, awful tragic cases, which thankfully are very small and minority, but then there's the ones that are brilliant. I have delivered babies. I have met some amazing people. I have actually, you know, be able to say, I've saved a life. And, you know, I don't say it with an ego. I say it with it. Wow, that's amazing. It actually gives me goosebumps when I say it. That is amazing. Lisa, you've worked with the RNLI on the lifeboats, so you are in sort of, they are comparable in the sense that you save lives as well. Um, What took you into that? I suppose I come from a very small fishing village, so as part of our childhood growing up, every time the lifeboat went to sea, there was two maroons that were sent off, two really loud bangs, and everybody in the village knew that the lifeboat was going out. So your parents would put you in the car, you'd drive down to the beach, and you'd watch the boat go out. So that's what I, was, I grew up with, and, <laughs> you know, that was just the way life was. You just waved off the lifeboat. Yeah, waved them off to see, find out what they were going out for. It was great fun. So I approached one of the lads then, as I got older, approached one of the lads and kind of said, God, I've been thinking about joining, and... They kind of laughed at me initially and was like, yeah, right. And I was like, no, actually, I've been thinking about it for a good while. There was actually no woman so far. No, there was no woman on the boat in my village. So, um, yeah, so I approached the manager of the station at the time and said to him I wanted to join. And he said, okay, there's, okay, don't see a major objection, but we have to go through the proper channels, which they did. And came back and said, yeah, okay, yeah, you can join the boat. So I'm on the crew 22 and a half years now. Um, I consider myself one of the lads, so I don't consider myself a girl on the crew. I'm one of the lads on the crew, so we're all even and we all do the same jobs. Um, it's very rewarding, you know, as yourself has said already, that, you know, rescuing people, our whole ethos is to save lives at sea. And to be able to bring somebody home to their loved one is why I do my job. That's my passion in life. And, you know, it's, it's really, really rewarding. So, Lisa, how often do you put to sea? As often as needs be, we go out. I was actually out in exercise last night, so, yeah. We go routinely whenever, once a week or once every 10 days, we go on a routine exercise, so a training exercise. And after that, then we're on call all the time. So once we're in the village, everybody's on call. So we go out, um, our kind of launches per year would probably be about 1920 per year. And for anybody who can't imagine how this works... Does a, does a siren go off and you're out of, the, out of your pyjamas and down to... <laughs> the boathouse or how does that how does that work well it's a good good synopsis of it basically yeah we've all got pagers so like that you could be asleep at home in your bed which happens an awful lot because our boat tends to go out an awful lot in the middle of the night or at the weekend so just tucked yourself into bed 12 o'clock at night and then half an hour later the pager's going off and adrenaline kicks in and you're just out of that bed like in a flash in your pajamas a lot of the time because I couldn't be bothered getting dressed and flying basically in bare feet as well and in the car, down to the station as safely as we can get there and as quick as you can get there, obviously. And uh, the way it works is it's the first six crew people, crew members down to the station that goes out. So you have to have a coxswain, you have to have a mechanic and preferably a navigator. So I'm one of the navigators. Um, and then we, our, our boat sits on a carriage. So basically it's in a, in a boathouse we have to basically have a tractor driver to pull the boat out on the carriage out to the sea. So we've one of the big boats. We've one of the all-weather lifeboats. So she's a self-writing lifeboat. So she can go out in any conditions. That's what she's designed to do. So forgive my ignorance. What does a navigator do? My job on the boat is to talk to the Coast Guard, number one. So find out what we're going out for. Um, and my bigger job is to find out where the casualty is. Find out what, you know, depending on the tide, depending on the wind, depending on what type of casualty we're going out to recover or um, rescue, I have to tell them, the coxswain, what course I think he should steer. So really it's down to me to decipher where the casualty should be in that time period that's elapsed from the time of them going missing and allowing all the other elements into play. So are there, do numbers come into it? Do you oh have, yeah, lots Are there of all kinds of calculations? Yes, lots of numbers, yes. Hats, hats off, Lisa. <laughs> 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 and Lisa, I know you've lost colleagues um, in, in the past few years um, of lifeboats and that sort of I don't know if you knew any of them personally, but certainly that's been very much brought to the fore in the last while. Is that a consideration? When you go out, do you think this could be it or... Yeah, it's amazing. I'm 22 and a half years on the crew. I have a 14-month-old boy and my widow as well. So it's only in the last... I was out in Ophelia. My page went off. I was going to the shop um, just before the Ophelia hit. And my page went off on the way to the shop and I headed straight down to the station. And I think in my 22 and a half years on the boat, it was my first time at sea going what the hell am I doing? I have a 14 month at home and, who's sing- and I'm a single mum. That was probably the first time it really hit me. But up until that, it doesn't. And, you know, I know we all do the job we do because we absolutely love it and that's our passion. And, you know, if, God forbid, if I was to be taken doing the job I'm doing, 
I would be happy. And I think going back to your point and the Coast Guard uh, girl down in the West that lost her life, she lost her life doing what she loved. And I completely understand that. And that's why we do it. That's why we do it. Impressive women. Uh, Kate Milady, who has left the tiny baby at home, but you look very competent, and I'm sure there's a babysitter with the baby. Oh, my husband's with her, so <laughs> she, she's well looked after. <laughs> she's only three months, and she's very long. I've seen the pictures. <laughs> she's going to be six foot within about four years, yeah, I think, probably. isn't she? Yes, an amazing-looking baby. But you managed to leave her behind, and you have a job as an aircraft engineer, Kate. How unusual is that? It's pretty unusual. It's pretty unusual. There's only about one in a thousand women to men, basically, in the industry worldwide. It was on the news this morning that there's only 3% of pilots worldwide are female, and the number of engineers are a lot smaller. So this is extraordinary. What took you there? Uh, Well, I was always going to fix stuff. That was always going to be it. I got my first toolbox at three years old. There's photos of me trying to dismantle the uh, fireplace with a face on me, like, what are you doing interrupting my work? Um, And I progressed on to... Woodwork, electrical, a little bit of everything through my teenage years and everything, and then got to work experience in fourth year. And I was lucky to be in a a mixed school where uh, someone had obviously been to Irish helicopters previously, and I looked at the list and I'm like, oh, that's kind of curious. I'll give that a shot. And I ended up out in two weeks in Irish helicopters and came home going, mum, 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 I want to be an aircraft engineer. And uh, I was the first generation of... uh, people who could get free university education as well back in the mid, uh, late 90s and the parents were keen to get a degree and my mum was like, you want to do mechanical engineering? And I lasted six weeks in mechanical engineering oh. and I was like, when are we doing practical work? And like, Sometime in fourth year? Okay, I think I'll be leaving. So I phoned my mum and by the time I got home she had the apprenticeship papers on the table for me. I got into Aer Lingus in an apprenticeship, really lucky to get in. Your mum is a great woman. Oh, she's a legend. Yes. She's an absolute legend, definitely. So, so, so Aer Lingus? Yeah, Team Aer Lingus, uh, there were 3,500 applicants the year that I went for it. 31 of us were accepted from outside the company and I was the only female. So, yeah, and uh, there, to be fair, in Ireland, there are, we are the nation that provides the most female Kate engineers. Kate Malady there's not that many. a big round of applause. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> So, you land in this entirely male environment. Completely male, yeah. And did somebody say to you, what are you doing here? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got slagged (laughs) off for being a girl as well. Like, you get all the, you know, you're a girl joke. But, you know, during the apprenticeship, it's probably when you see it first. Yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, you have to check, like, wait, I'm a girl? What? Oh, (laughs) hadn't quite realised. But to be fair, when you're slagged off during training for being a girl, you're getting, they're getting the low-hanging fruit. The boy who's, who's overweight gets slagged off for being overweight. The boy with bad skin gets slagged off for being the boy with bad skin or questionable hygiene. You get slagged off for being a girl. Oh, no, really? <laughs> Shocking. So, no, and to be fair, it takes a very little bit of time before you show your own strengths. And uh, if you do the job that's in front of you, that's it. You're as good as anyone else. And yeah, over the years, I've certainly found that. But I did my four-year apprenticeship, and then I went uh, internationally working because there was no work in Ireland, and um, we were shipped out. And I spent 13 years contracting around Europe and Africa, um, progressed in my field to get my licenses, which means I'm the last person to say it's safe to fly on the avionics systems, which is the electrical instrument radio and radar systems and compass for aircraft, commercial Actually, and business jets. that sounds jet. terrifying. <laughs> it's quite fun, to be fair. Did the baby keep you awake at nights? No. Are you always fully alert? Yes, 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 always, always. I've only rarely had to excuse myself from work because of tiredness. But I'd work 12, 14 hours a day as needed to get the aircraft done. You know, and uh, yeah, I've worked all over the world and uh, it's been quite an experience. Yes, I'm very ashamed to say that when, I, when we arrived in here this morning into this lovely little museum, I said, oh my God, I had to get a train at a quarter to seven this morning. I'm still not over it. <laughs> and each of these women... Uh, Kate took off at four o'clock this morning uh, from Galway and the rest all seemed to work unbelievable shift hours. Am I right about that, Teresa? Yeah, I was just saying if I should have been in work, well, I could have been in work last night. I had panel exams yesterday. They were so much fun. Uh, and my night shift is 15 hours. So I was like, I'd have been finishing work at nine and I'd have done 15 she did. hours. She made me feel very bad. <laughs> and I'm going in tonight to work at an ambulance for 15 hours. And well, how does that work? Do you get a big break in the middle of it or do you just keep going? No. Uh, we, our shift, we do days and nights. So our days are nine hours, it's nine to six, and our nights are six to nine, uh, obviously, on the, on the flip side. Um, breaks are a lovely idea, but as you can imagine, um, especially on the ambulance side of things, it is extremely busy. It is constantly, constantly, constantly on the go. What's your route, Teresa? Where do you? I mean, is it, is it everywhere? Uh, yeah, well, I'm based in Dolphin, Dolphin's Barn Fire Station. 
Um, so obviously we would do most within that kind of locale and area, but basically if we are the next available ambulance and there's a case anywhere in the city, we can be sent. Uh, Dublin Fire Brigade have 12 ambulances on the road, which everybody thinks we must have about 50 uh, emergency ambulances on the road. And, and obviously NAS have, have a, a bunch as well, but um, we did in the region have 110,000 calls last year with our 12 ambulances. Um, and uh, we have, obviously, um, because everybody is dual trained paramedic and uh, firefighter, uh, on the back of a fire engine we have paramedics as well. So if there's no ambulances available, you're out doing a lot of EMS calls on, on those as well. Teresa, is it sad work? Part of it is. Yeah, part of it is. Um, it, it, I suppose we are there to witness, I've said this already about people's worst day in their lives, we, we do witness a lot of people passing away. We do go to cases and, you know, they're the people who die at home. We do see all the lonely elderly people who are in their houses and nobody visits them. Um, we do see people living in conditions, living on the streets, all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's kind of hard to explain. You do have to detach because you couldn't. You'd bring them all home with you. You'd have it all with you. Um, but at the same time, there's an element of seeing the best in, in people too, even those people in those horrible situations. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, and I'm sure Lisa will agree, it's kind of, it's hard to explain. It's nearly a privilege. It really is a privilege to be, like, I, I, I say it's like a fly on the wall. Um, so if you go to somebody's house and you knock on the door, no matter what's going on behind the door, they open the door and we'll all be nice and we'll all be friendly. We don't get that. It's like we're invisible when we rock into somebody's house because obviously whatever's going on, it's a crisis, it's an emergency, it's, it's drama, it's everything. Um, and very often we go in and uh, I've just finished, uh, which is what we're doing, my panel exams for yesterday, advanced paramedic training, which is kind of the next level up. And basically it's bringing as much of the hospital to you before, you know, before you, before you hand to, to give you the best chances in, in so many ways. And part of that is we would go to a lot of cardiac arrests and we would be in people's houses and we would run a full cardiac arrest in the house exactly the same way they would run it in a hospital. So we'd be able to give all the medications, all the drugs, shocking, intubate a patient, the whole lot. But there's a protocol that we run through and if we run through that entire protocol and we can't save them, we will actually cease resuscitation in their home. And you have to explain to a family member that we have done everything we can, but I'm very sorry that this person has died. And that part is very difficult because you are, you're, you're, you know, you're giving them the worst news possible. But at the same time, in some ways, it's quite lovely because if somebody has died at home, you know, we can put them back into bed, they're there, and it's nearly more comforting for them than flashing off to hospital where they, you know, they are going to die anyway. This is the point, you know, they, it's not a, yes, we do save lives, but in 90% in, in of cardiac arrest because, you know, it's all going to happen to us someday. Um, so yeah, you're 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 there. It's a privilege to, to you know, and you've to, you've got all these people, and you're trying to break the news and kind of remove yourself from the situation at the same time. Um, and that's part of the job too. It's to be the you know the empathetic person. That's a strength. I think that's one thing people don't realise. You know, people think strength, especially when you say fire fireman, firefighter, it, the strength is physical. I actually think the emotional strength and the empathetic strength is actually well. And the guys, it's to to the. To, to be fair to the guys, it's a discredit to them to just think of them as physically strong because they're just as good at it as well. Um, and that's a strength to be able to be in that situation and, and to help people because you're still helping them. I know you, you, you know, this patient has passed away, but you're, you're there to help everybody else in that room too. Um, okay, you're being, you're, being, you're being actually interesting about, because I, I immediately jumped in my head to the idea of the word empathy being a particularly female thing. Um, Am I, Lisa, am I wrong about that? Do you, do you think you might bring something special because of your femaleness? I do. I think in really bad situations, yeah. Like I can account um, one occasion when we, we picked up a very young boy who'd passed away at sea and he'd been at sea for a few hours. And, you know, at the time, a lot of the lads had kids around the same age as, as this, little, this boy that we recovered. And, you know, I think, yeah, women are, have a different way of dealing with things. And I definitely think I bring definitely something to the table on that front. Um, being able to deal with things a lot better maybe than they are. And I'm, I don't mean, don't mean that in, to discredit them or their ability in that. But I think particularly because they had kids the same age, they found it really difficult to deal with it, the aftermath. It was great. I, our whole philosophy and why I do the job I do is to bring people home. So if they're passed away, I'm still going to bring them home. I want to bring them home to their loved ones. And that's why we do the job we do. So... 
but yeah, definitely. I do think a woman brings a, a big, adv- big benefit to and advantage to the crew, definitely. I have this awful vision of your boat coming into harbour with a little boy's body on board. That, does that leave a mark? Um, well, I suppose, as, as you said yourself, you, it's part of the job. So you do your job and that's your job done. For me, I suppose that particular boy I'm talking about lost his big brother as well at the same day. There's two of them that were lost and a 21-year-old cousin and an older uncle as well. So it was four of them that drowned the same day. And we had the uncle on the boat and one of the young boys on the boat with us to come back into harbour. And it's very hard, I suppose, when you see a family in harbour hoping that you'll have some good news for them and unfortunately you don't. But as I said, bringing them home is the most important thing. They had to wait another week before the other two bodies came up. So, you know, that's a hard part. That's the hard part of it. And you've seen all, the, I suppose, the tragedy with Rescue 116 and the fact that there's two people still missing from Rescue 116. As lifeboat crew and people and rescue people, all we want to do is bring people home. And that's so hard. It's so hard seeing those families and not having somebody to bury, you know, and not having closure for them. It's so hard. I remember being up at a little, a little, um, little cove area near Ackle, uh, around no, about April last year, and seeing it was, a, I think it was a Sunday, and I saw that your boats going out, still searching. Is that still yeah. going on? Um, I'm not 100% sure at this moment in time. No, I, knew, yeah. I know they're, they're constantly, any time they go out and exercise on that, they'll always look. So they're always looking, yeah. but it's, it's, it's very sad. It's a very sad scenario. And as a lifeboat on the East Coast in Clarehead, we would have done so many rescues, exercises with Rescue 116. We, I would have been on the helicopter, been airlifted a few times from the lifeboat up, up to them. And they're such an amazing bunch of people. But again, they died doing what they loved. And I spoke to one of the guy's uh, sisters recently, and she said the same thing. The only consolation for the family is that they knew that he did what he, he loved to do. Mm. And, you know, I get that, and you get that too. We understand what that's like. Yeah, I think, as well as that, we know we're taking a risk. And yeah. I, I know it sounds a bit strange when you say that to people. Like, mm. I always remember, my, especially my parents, and, and understandably so, were really like, you're putting yourself at risk here, you know, you're going. And I said, yeah, you know. But this is what I want to do. And I understand that risk and I accept that risk. And I have to accept that for my friends and family, it is tough to know that there's a possibility when I go into work, I'm not going to come home. And I say it's a cliche and we all say, oh, do you know how many buildings I actually rummage that are burning and all that kind of stuff to try and, you know, dampen it down. But like, no more than, than Lisa, it is a very real possibility that someday we go out and we're not coming home. But then on the flip side of it is when everybody else rings 999 or 112, we're the ones that come. There's nobody else coming, but we're the ones that come. And that's what drives you. You're, 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 that's exactly what drives you. Because when you pick up that phone, we want people to be able to know there's somebody coming here. There's somebody coming to get me. And our crews, well, this is the other side of it then, your crew, we all look after each other. We all want to bring each other home. So there's this kind of really, really, I suppose, in, innate need or innate, you know, uh, want to do it. And at the same time, we understand the risks. We want to come home. And it is all about coming home. And it's all about bringing other people home too, I suppose. Or in my case, you know, doing the best for people, getting them to a hospital, all that kind of stuff. Kate, this is, this is actually on a more practical level, rather. Um, but, for example, when you joined, uh, when you went into, into, um, into engineering and you were the only woman, were there actual toilets for women or were you? I was lucky from the early part of my career. Um, there was toilets and facilities for women in Team Erlingus. But on my travels around the world, I've often been the first woman to ever work in facilities as I turn up. Um, I've gone to a short-term contract in Slovenia at one point. I was only there for eight weeks. And during that time, they started knocking down walls to build a female locker room. Yeah. Uh, and I left just as it was finishing. Anyway. <laughs> but they're prepared for other women, which is good. I've been refused from jobs under the premise that they had no toilets available for women, although they had plenty of ladies in the offices. They weren't so comfortable having a woman on the floor. But different countries will have different attitudes, you know, uh, depending on their kind of cultural norms. But um, overall, I've had great reception, though. Most places, even though I'm the first woman walking in the door for them, like, I've really gotten great receptions. Funnily enough, like, Women's Day, International Women's Day has only been celebrated in Ireland that I'm aware of for the last handful of years. 2003, when I went out my first job, 8th of March turned around, no idea what it meant. And I walked into work and there was a rose on my toolbox. Yeah, and every woman in the company got gifted a rose. (laughs) There's uh, an image. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty cool. And to be fair, every year, no matter where I've been, if I'm working on the 8th of March, there's always been a rose in my toolbox. 
Yeah, Aww. which is very cool. And you're really, re- you know, respected for what you do. Like, Sorry, do you know who leaves it there? Uh, you know, it's the company. <laughs> the company give every woman in the company, uh, most European companies will give every woman in the company a rose on Women's Day. This is very or charming. Or a box of chocolates, but usually rose. On a slightly unrelated note, I was listening to an interview yesterday, it may have been an RTE. Uh, there's a book by a woman called Joanne Lippmann. Uh, and it's called win-win, and it's when business works for women, and it works. When, she says when business works for women, it works for everyone. But she said the thing that men hate most, that male bosses hate most in the workplace, is guess what? Women's tears. <laughs> Women's tears makes their testosterone reduce. <laughs> it terrifies them. But as the, but the, but the, but the difficult side of this is that it also causes them not to give as much feedback. They're, they're afraid of giving as much feedback to women for fear of reducing them to tears. And Joanne Lipman explained, because I was actually shouting at the radio, I said, the tears, <laughs> tears. Tears actually are very rarely because you're feeling over-emotional. It's because you're angry. Yeah. And she said this. Yeah. Now, do you see that, Teresa? I notice you, you're all nodding there um, in recognition. Do, I, I, because men, obviously, they, have, they, they, they act out their rage or anger, whereas I just cry and, and feel ashamed of myself afterwards. What happens in a, in a, in a male-dominated workplace, Teresa? Oh, tears, I can't imagine, yeah. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, frustration. And a lot of it, you, if you explain it to guys that this is, I'm not crying, because they're like, oh, don't start the tears, you know, you're just trying to get me feel sorry for you. It's like, no, I'm frustrated. You're, when the red mist descends for guys, you know, their heckles are up, the testosterone goes through the roof. And I said, you know when you get that blinding rage and you just want to punch something? I said, yeah, well, we, we cry. I said, because what happens is we don't have that, we want, we, well, maybe we do, but in general what it is is that overwhelming just... Ah, you know, and it's it's either as it's a that's where you do that. I'm going to be stay angry or I'm going to cry. You know, you're on that kind of teetering line, um, and obviously I try my best to not cry. But sometimes you don't. You know, it's like yes, I need to go and take five minutes. You know, and it's like because. I'm frustrated. Um, and sometimes, yeah, sadness, but like everybody gets sad. That's, you oh, know. no, that's a different kind yeah. of tears altogether, yeah. But the general is, yeah, and I suppose this idea of it lowers their testosterone and they don't want to give feedback, oh, I don't like to see women crying. Is it a, I, you know, I, do they, some of them think it's, it's emotional blackmail. Um, and uh, some of them think, oh, you're just crying now because I had to go to, and you're like, no, no, it's not that. It's, I'm frustrated. This is how I'm getting it out. I, I, you know, I'm not going to shout and I'm not going to roar, and that's just the way it is. I confess, I did cry for a guard once. <laughs> <laughs> Was he good looking? <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> he compared me. He said, "He said my mother now. She would. She 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 used to put on her seatbelt when she was leaving the house, and and you should put on your seatbelt when you're leaving the house." I know, Kathy. Yes, I'm afraid so. <laughs> I feel bad. As I say, it didn't work. He was way ahead of me. And it's true. But nonetheless, I, 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 what about you, Kate? Have you, ever, have you ever cried in anger? No, to be fair, it doesn't happen that my job gets to that level usually. I mean, we have, obviously, we have to do the highest level of work constantly. You're 100% precision. We have a tolerance of a th- three thousandths of an inch kind of thing where we're cutting metal. Uh, everything has to be perfect within aviation. Like, you're keeping people safe at 30,000 feet. Um, but as everything is clearly delineated as well. You know, we've got strict procedures, we've got strict manuals, you have to interpret them, obviously, and instruct, but ultimately the frustration for us ends up with time pressures and, and lack of resources. But it is all solvable. So we don't often get to that level of frustration where you cry in work as such. Um, I've gotten angry in work, but uh, I have gotten angry. And, uh, and what do you do when you're angry? Oh, I go very cold. Very, very cold. I stop cursing, which is the first warning. <laughs> People know they're in trouble with me when I'm not generally throwing out the odd F here or there. Um, and I get apparently very scary. Uh, my eyes get extremely scary. And uh, yeah. And the only time I get angry is when you put someone's life in danger. Because we work in an extremely dangerous environment in terms of hydraulics, pneumatic systems. You know, people have been killed doing what I do very commonly. Um, and as a result of that, like if you put someone's life in danger on the hangar floor, you're not seeing nice Kate at all. And so I've gotten extremely angry. But that's the only reason I'd ever get angry in work. You know, otherwise... We're, we're part of a really close-knit team. Uh, you know, you might be working in a new place, new people, but the work that you're doing is so important that you all work together. There's no blame. There's no... Um, we need to know if there's a problem so we can fix it rather than say, you know, you're, you're stupid for doing something wrong. So because we always have to work so closely together and, and, and with such attention to details, 
you don't allow things like uh, anger to rise up too much. You know, it doesn't get the job done yeah. effectively. But I mean, I have to say now in the years, I've been 18 years on the road here and there and uh, worked with so many guys. And I've had a couple of emotional times when there's something going on in personal life. And the lads I have worked with always, every team I've worked with have been the most amazing support, like amazing emotional support. And, and it's often thought that like, oh no, guys won't be good to go to for with a problem. But like I've had teams of guys being Absolutely unbelievable in situations where if I'd been around women, I think I would have fallen apart a lot more and handled it a lot more difficultly. Why do you say that? Well, I'm a practical minded person. I work, you know, the way I work is similar, exactly the same as the guys. And I just find that they were, they were the right level of support. There was none of this poor me kind of stuff. There's no, it's more, right, come on, we're all together. I'm going to lift you up and carry you along until you're able to stand on your own two feet. You know, rather than so oh, let's just cry and talk about it for ages and just <laughs> do the death on it. It's like oh, here, can't be doing this. Like and now caged. <laughs> there are times for that when you're with your mates on a Friday night and a bottle of wine. Oh, yeah. That's something else. <laughs> Actually, it's very nice to think that she's in charge of our plane structure, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, that, that's a really... Lisa. What about you? Have you ever cried in, in anger at work? No, I just get angry with them. I get angry with the boys. I suppose being the first woman, I kind of, my whole philosophy is I can do what the boys can do. So I need to get on the boat going, no, I'm not making the tea and coffee. The boiler's there, but I haven't got made on my head, so I didn't join the crew to make the tea or coffee. So uh, my philosophy is I'm one of the boys. So I tend to get mad with them more than get upset with them. Um, at the same time, exactly as Kate said, like I lost my husband um, a few years ago and, you know, it was the lifeboat's always been my place to go. It's been my kind of safe haven. And when I lost Steve, the lads were brilliant. Were brilliant. They went down to the station and they weren't talking about him. They just got on with things. It was just normal. And at the same time, when I went home or whatever, they'd constantly ring me. I'd get text messages from random members of the crew. How are you doing? Are you doing okay? Do you need anything in the house? Anything fixed? And you know, we're here for you. It's like a big happy family. And I think that's the best way to describe the RNLI. You can walk into any, I can walk into any lifeboat station in Ireland or England and they'll welcome you with open arms. And that's kind of, and it's probably the same with the fire service as well, and the same with your job, Kate, too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a big, happy family, and we're very close. We've got each other's back all the time. Um, but yeah, I, when I do need to cry, I usually cry after I've left the station or else on the way out. I knew normally one of them catches me and goes, oh, crap, what's wrong now? <laughs> She's not shouting. Do you see his testosterone lowering? <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. Soft side comes out. Now, look, we can't leave that, that end of the conversation without talking about the hashtag Me Too movement and sexual harassment in the workplace and that sort of thing. I see you nodding your head there. Mm. Kate. I think it's quite interesting. Uh, people would think in my industry that I'd face a lot of sexual harassment. Mm. And, uh, genuinely not. I've had one occasion that I can safely say was a, uh, a, a, an incident in Italy years ago when a gentleman was uh, insinuating he, did, he, he, found, he was upset I was leaving because he was enjoying staring at my behind all day. No, I hadn't actually spoken to this bloke, but anyway. Um, you, know, you hadn't known I didn't know him. staring No, no, and I didn't know him. He was kind of creepy. Anyway, so um, and, uh, I kind of ignored it and got really angry about it. That was one of the few times I got really angry. And two hours later, in front of 400 engineers, I decided to tell them exactly what I thought of him. Oh, <laughs> um, what did you say? Yeah, well, it was basically along the lines of this guy might say something. or and the, It was less about what he was said, more about the feeling that you get from what he was saying. It was pretty... Ugh. Um, and, uh, and if colleagues are saying, look, he's going to do it to some other woman and she may not be as easy to able to stand up and, and say something back. So I told him what I thought of him in front of 400 Italian engineers who consequently gave me a round of applause. <laughs> Did they? Yeah, yeah. They haven't and been staring at you behind. No, not at all. Oh, no, <laughs> apparently not. Chris, um, what about you? Yeah, I, do you know what I think it is? I think when you're in... It's, it's funny, when you're in an environment that is so male-dominated and you are so... They're, I think, much more aware themselves that, you know, I, this could be misconstrued or, you know, I don't want to be crossing yeah. that line. And like what you say, we're one big happy family. I would always say it's like having 14 big brothers that drive you nuts at times, that, you know, you know, treat you like their little sister and all that kind of stuff, but fiercely have your back. And mm. genuinely, in the main, everybody or most people, you know, are so cautious and but also like they speak out for the women you know that kind of way like I think they understand more because they're in that environment whereas I think it's more where there's a lot of women in an environment and it's kind of nearly that sort of you know the boss with this yeah. 20 women that's around him it's place. that's the scarier place yeah. I think we're actually quite lucky and um, genuinely think we're quite lucky in where we are that it's 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 nearly the complete opposite mm. 
Bethy, how did you get into the industry, which is, which is, which is a, a very male-dominated industry? I have never thought of it as of um, any male or female, uh, male-dominated industry. I got into the industry because I love um, visuals, I love photographs, I love taking pictures, and I just wanted to do that. Um, and I wasn't thinking um, of... Um, any uh, possible consequences. And like those amazing ladies, they were probably not thinking, uh, why do I become the aircraft engineer? Well, because I love it. I want to do it because I love it. And that's... Um, and better in, in your book, of all yeah. those amazing women, a woman's work, are there any that in particular, that I know two of the ladies we have here are, 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 are cover girls in the book, um, but are there any, in terms of women who who stick out in your head, you know, some, as you say, in your in 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 in, in your, uh, you've said they have had to leave what doing something they loved. They've had to make many compromises to stay at what they were doing. What stories stick with you? There are many, and. Um for sure, it's always uh, stories uh, that are personal, like um, Lisa's story, um, Lisa, uh, who is saving people's lives, yet had this huge tragedy in her life and lost a person um, who was the most important person in her life. Um, stories of women who have um, physical handicap, yet they do... Uh, amazing work and they are overlooking the physical handicap as much as we are overlooking whether we're working in male-dominated industry or not. Um, stories like that. So so it's not only um, it's not only stories about the work. It's really um, oh, there was a, a very uh, many personal stories that stu stu stood out for me. And I must say that the journey was um, incredibly... It was one of the most important journeys of my life to meet all those women. Because, um, like, uh, you just heard those fabulous ladies here. Imagine in a space of a year and a half or in a space of two years, you meet 53 women like that. <laughs> and I must say that... I vividly remember um, uh, for the book, my last photo shoot was down in Kilkenny. I went down to travel, uh, to, uh, I went down to photograph uh, a welder, Polly Donnellan. And I remember driving back and I felt almost like dizzy and overwhelmed. And I'm like, I was thinking, I can't bear any more of this amazingness and kindness. <laughs> it's just insane. Like, <laughs> so. <laughs> So uh, I'm very privileged to be part of this journey, to make this happen. It's just crazy, amazing to be here. Um, and yeah, no, thank you. Thank you all. Because let you. me say that in, in Betta's book, there are full-length portraits and uh, very, uh, very beautifully summarized uh, biogs by Jennifer Davidson. And they include the welder we were talking about, an undertaker, a boxer, a pilot, a camerawoman, a blacksmith, a chess champion, uh, a scientist, a bus driver. I've seen some great women bus drivers, actually. A violin maker, and oh, these women we have with, and they're from all over the place. A lot of them are Irish, but some of them are from elsewhere. Better. Uh, they all live in Ireland, uh, live and work in Ireland, um, except there is one ec uh, exception, and it's an English uh, percussionist, um, um, Evelyn, Evelyn Glenny. Glenny. Yeah. And uh, to give it a bit of continuity, I, I, uh, there is another English lady who is in Belfast, and she's the Michelin star chef, um, uh, Danny Barry. So. Evelyn Glenny is the yeah. most extraordinary person. For those of you who don't know about her, she is totally deaf. She's profoundly deaf, mm -hmm. yet she is a musician. She's a yeah. percussionist, and it, she is a most amazing story. I thought she was Scottish, actually, but you've... you've she, she was born in Scotland, yes. but she now li lives in Cambridge. And you also have footballer Stephanie Roach, rally driver Rosemary Smith, uh, uh, writer Liz Nugent, conductor Emer Noon, astrophysicist Susan McKenna Lawler, of whom you've all heard. So really, that's quite a collection you have in there. Right, so... We're going to ask you, strong, successful women, what advice you would give other women. Teresa. 
hate this question. <laughs> um, what advice I'd give it? <sighs> I suppose, um, and you reminded me of what I said in the book, I think I said about taking challenges head on and taking responsibility for yourself. There's, there's lots of people out there who think, I wonder, can I do this? Maybe I could do this. My challenge is go out and do it. Um, don't look at what you think it is. Don't get caught up in all the sort of, you know, look past the propaganda, especially in my role. Um, you know, I, I spoke about it earlier about what everybody thinks a firefighter is. I hope that maybe having spoken about it, it's about so much more um, than just, you know, running into burning buildings. And um, I, we are, there's 50 out of, I think, 850. There's about four, four, four and a half, five percent of of uh, of the workforce in firefighters are female and it's, it just seems to be a role that we can't attract more women into and honestly I don't know why um, so if you're thinking about it genuinely go for it uh, if you don't like it you, you know that's fine but don't sit on the sidelines thinking I can't do it I'm trust me I'm telling you you can I'm going to quote your quote from the book, which I love. It says, face everything head on, take responsibility for yourself and your actions, and don't be afraid to admit when you're wrong. Own your emotions, and most of all, believe in yourself. I think that deserves a round of applause. Now, Kate, the quote in the book from you is, strength comes in so many forms, being supportive and good-hearted, being fair and confident, honest and humble, being able to handle every situation, and when that goes awry, being able to seek help, being aware of your place in the world and owning it. I can't think of very much to add to that. Have you anything to add to that? <laughs> not not you, a lot. What would you say to young women now who are thinking? Absolutely, like you're saying, go for it. Absolutely go for it. If any woman out there is keen on getting involved in a trade or learning how to do things with your hands, I would really recommend you get in touch with Whitney, Women in Trades Network Ireland. Um, we're a network of women who, who tied up tangentially with Beta's book as Beta's book was being gathered. Jen Kelly had founded Whitney and was gathering women around Ireland who were working in trades. There's quite a few of us now. And, uh, and get in touch if you're interested and we'll do everything we can to assist or advise and encourage women into more trades. And we can do it. We have bricklayers out there. We have motor mechanics, heavy goods vehicle mechanics. We have welders. We have bricklayers. There's loads of women doing loads of amazing things. Um, Just go for it. Are there women carpenters? Yeah, there's some amazing women carpenters. I'd like to be a carpenter. That's something that I always... They're fantastic. I know I'd be very bad at it, but I've always loved the idea. But that's about you. Just go and try. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly as a hobby, if nothing else. Well, I would like to make money out of it, but anyway. And that comes afterwards, I think. Lisa, what you said in the book is, I'm equal to all the men on the crew. I know I can do anything they can do. I'm a very determined person. I hope I inspire others to follow their dreams, whether it's a male-dominated job or not. So what would you add to that? I would just say, if you want it, no matter what you want to do, no matter what area it's in, whether it's male-dominated or not, just go for it. Do it. I did it. I was the first woman on my boat, and I can do what the boys can do. And the boys really respect me now for that. And, you know, I wouldn't let that stop you. It's follow your dreams. Follow your dreams. There's so many jobs and, you know, careers out there that are open to everybody. So don't, and, you know, just be determined. I was very determined. And I think when I initially joined the boat, I'd say the lads were going, oh, she won't last a week or two, maybe. Then all of a sudden, six months went by. God, she's still here. And then about a year later, they were like, oh, there's the boiler. And it's like, no, I'm not making tea and coffee. And I've, I've never made tea and coffee on that boat in 22 and a half years. Out of principle. I just won't. <laughs> So follow your dreams and go for it. And like they're great. I have to say, as you said yourself, they're a great bunch to work with. The boys are brilliant. Brilliant. Now, because it's International Women's Day, Betha, have you a wish for women generally? Yes, I do. I wish all women think that they are good enough. And I wish the whole society, teachers, parents, bring up their girls to know that they are good enough. Uh, that's the most important thing because we often don't do things uh, just because we think, oh, we probably are not going to be good, succeed. We don't have the education. We don't have the formal uh, papers, document, whatever. Yeah, just go for it because you're good enough. And uh, also I wish for every woman to get opportunity whatever that might be, 
because whenever women are given opportunities and can do things, life improves for everyone around them. And so say all of us. Lisa, what's your wish for women on International Women's Day? I wish them all success and happiness and in their careers and in their home life and that, you know, to be, to go out there and conquer, basically. Everything's achievable in life and... Yeah, I think that's what I'd wish them for. Kate, what about you with your little baby at home? How are you managing all that? Oh, it's great. She's great crack. <laughs> it's easy. <laughs> I don't know about that now. <laughs> I have an amazing husband um, who's a role reversal to me. He does massage therapy and I'm the, I'm the phone who fixes shit. He fixes people. So it's perfect. Perfect. But uh, I think I'd bring it closer to home for International Women's Day. There's, there's two aspects of Irish society I'd like to see change. One is uh, separation in schools. I would really like to see Ireland move away from segregated schools. It's lunacy. We're not giving the same opportunities to both males and females. Plenty of boys might be amazing at home economics. They don't get the opportunity. Plenty of girls could be doing woodwork, metalwork and such, but they don't get the opportunity in single-sex education. I'd love to see that change. And, of course, I would also like to see Ireland finally move into the 21st century and actually allow for the fact that we have abortion in this country, we just uh, export it and penalise people for getting pregnant. So I really like to see Ireland moving on and repealing the Eighth Amendment. That would be wonderful. Next year, if we could sit here and say it's gone, that would be amazing. Teresa, your wish for women on International Women's Day. (laughs) Well, obviously, I'm going to echo everything these fabulous ladies have said um, firstly yep it, it not just as you said about abortion repealing the eighth is about so much more than that because obviously there's so many women in so many different situations it's about their own health about their family health all that kind of stuff and I think it's supporting women and bringing us into this idea that we're more than just um, a vessel to, yeah, to everybody here, here. else um, and I think what, we, what I would wish for women really is, remember, ladies, we are bloody unicorns. <laughs> Sorry, first. <laughs> we are, we're unicorns. Uh, and I say, myself and my friends say that because we're so unique, we're so different, we're so individual. We drive so much. Even no matter what you're doing, if you're at home with your kids, you're driving that child, you are raising that child. If you are doing what we do, we're, you know, we are so unique. And I think so many women, like I've said, sit on the sidelines and they wonder, am I good enough? Can I do this? Maybe I shouldn't. What's stopping you? Get out there and do that. There are so many women out there who are going to support you. We're there to support you because I've been supported by so many amazing women. And, you know, my friends are fierce. They are absolutely fierce. They're lionesses. I use all these big words, but do you know what? That's what they are. So my wish is that more women realise their worth and that other women encourage and support each other to get out there and go for it. Fierce unicorns. Trevor White, we could have called this fierce unicorns. Look, I am so delighted to hear you all so early on our International Women's Day and coming in here to talk to us with your genuinely, I think inspirational is way overused, but in this case, you are genuinely inspirational, you four women. So, Betta Bygard, Teresa Hudson, Lisa Levens Burgess, and Kate Malady, thank you so much for coming in to talk Thanks, to us. Thanks for having Best of luck with all you do. That's all we have time for. The podcast was produced by Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon, Iman, on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Happy International Women's Day, everyone, and I'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.